Hi everybody and welcome to the Golders Podcast, where we aim to sprinkle particles of knowledge by engaging and educating. With your co-hosts, father and son duo, Keith and David Mayer. We're excited to have you on this journey with us and we know our wide variety of world-class guests will provide lots of value for our listeners. To ensure you stay up to date with everything we've got going on on the podcast, make sure you subscribe. Today, we welcome Richard Thomas onto the Golders podcast. Richard is currently the academy manager at Watford Football Club. Richard has spent time at several clubs and was actually the assistant manager at Notts County under Kevin Nolan. Hear what he has to say about his coaching journey and also what he believes is important when it comes to leading both players and staff alike. Richard, welcome and thank you for creating time to be with us today. Can you just share a quick summary with us of your background in football, please? Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Um, just played youth football at uh, local side to me, Ridgeway Rovers. I was involved in uh, West Ham's academy up till 16. And then, uh, oh, academy of school, West stuff back then, not quite as um, diligent as it is now, but uh, certainly lots of good stuff going on, just like today. Um, I then sort of moved straight into non-league, moved to Australia briefly, played over there for a site called Belmore Hercules. Came back, sort of got into coaching at 19-ish. Um, spent all my playing career in, in non-league, but always coached alongside it. So either as a, a player coach or as a manager of the non-league club I was at. Or alternatively, I had sort of my own company alongside it, as, as lots of people do, to sort of combine those two incomes. Spent my 20s sort of doing that, playing and coaching. Um, then I moved to Canada at 30 to uh, follow a different a different career path briefly. I was planning to emigrate. I, I moved over to a resort called Whistler to work as a ski instructor, a snowboard instructor. And um, for different reasons, I ended up coming back after a couple of years. And then uh, I ended up going into Lake Orient, which is my first sort of uh, coaching exposure to a professional club. I um, worked there with uh, two guys, Andy Edwards and Mel Jeffries uh, invited me to come in and, and work with them. Ended up staying seven years before moving to Knox County to work in the first team. Um, and then more recently, just moved a little stick with Grantham Town on the league side after leaving Knotts. And then uh, got a call to would I come and get involved at Watford or come and have a chat about roles at Watford. And I've been here for the last 15 or 16 months. Bit of variety. It definitely is. And you've got a ski skiing and snowboard instructor in there as well yeah yeah big passion of mine ever since i was very lucky as a kid that my, my parents were able to take me uh, a couple of times and fell in love with that straight away and um promised myself that i would go and spend a season as a ski instructor or a snowboard instructor you know i went over to canada and got qualified actually to make that transition as smooth as possible so that took uh, a few days one winter then i actually moved the following winter um on a visa and ended up staying about 18 months, I think, in the end. Um, I worked at a golf course in the summer, just some real, a bit of variety, but the coaching side of it was very similar, actually. The care and the methodology, uh, the pedagogy, I suppose, around it was no different. You know, there's so much crossover in all sports, as we know. Um, so, yeah, absolutely thoroughly loved every minute of that. Didn't miss a day. It's a phenomenal experience for anyone that is thinking about it and never gets a chance. So, Rich, you, you mentioned that you were at Notts County with the first team. Um, you were the assistant to Kevin Nolan. What learning lessons did you take from that experience? Oh, wow. That's, uh, this, this could take a while. Um, 
from from Kev specifically, so much it's you know I won't ever be able to repay him properly. Um, from the players, I think you learn different things from different aspects. Actually, you know, you learn from the players very quickly because it was my first exposure to first team professional football. I've been a manager and a coach at non-league level. You expect there to be an element of difference, but obviously it's going to be lots the same. The change room is a change room at the end of the day. So, in terms of the empathy um, and leadership from Kev, uh, in terms of my own understanding ability um you know areas that i needed to improve very quickly uh, then off the pitch dealing directly with uh, board members or you know different members of staff all around the building where you were looked upon in a slightly different light let's say because you had a role of such seniority which i hadn't been used to you, you know you, you have that same element of seniority when you're the academy manager um, but I'm not one who particularly carries myself worrying about a hierarchical structure. It's just let's get on and make a, a you know, good, positive environment. Um, but it was interesting to see a number of people sort of turn to you and lean on you. One because you were the, you might have been the conduit to the manager if they wanted some something from him or some access to him, or, or similarly, you know, just because they felt that you were bringing some experience that they did or didn't know you have just because of your new title and your new role. So it was a really interesting experience, and you know, I was lucky enough to work with. Uh, Mark Crosley, while we were there, learned an enormous amount from him. Again, this is in terms of leadership skills and um, specifically, obviously, as our goalkeeper coach, just so much about that. The career he's had, I couldn't fail to, to learn. And then listening to him and Kev to sit and debate centre-forward play because he'd scored nearly 100 goals and, and Norm because he'd been at Forest for 13 years and under Clough and just listening to them to debate that all day, every day. I just used to sit and pinch myself, really. Um, listening to the conversation, wondering how I'd managed to find myself in the room, but you couldn't fail to pick up your little nuances of behavioural traits or terminology and then tactical and technical understanding and awareness that sometimes just being reinforced. Um, and other times you're going, right, I've looked at it like that. So there wasn't any aspect of it where you couldn't fail to learn if you really wanted to bother looking for it. And even since departing, you know, you walk, you walk into more scenarios after the event and you realise, well, I picked that up under Kev, or I, I got that from Norm, or different people, you know, Jamie Galton, who worked with us there, Mike Edwards in the S&C department, and I still reference those to all the time. Um, and I suppose still in touch with a lot of those staff, so it's great that you can then lean on them for their own experience in their field. But yeah, the, the learning was almost no ending, I'll be honest, there's so many different facets, it was fantastic. Richin, we had a conversation last week where we just touched base and there's lots of depth behind your answers and lots of experiences which you've you can call upon in your current role. But in, in 2019, you, you were interviewed to become the under-18s coach at Watford uh, and was asked a few days later to become the Watford Academy manager. Uh, that was some presentation I put on that day. <laughs> no, it, it, was, it was just, um, it was a bit surreal when I got the first phone call off Barry, who I worked closely with here. Because I had, you know, it had been set up, I'd come down and would I have a chat and, and know more about the under-18s role. I ended up meeting Barry Quinn and Andy Scott, who I will, will always be grateful for, for bringing me into the club, um, and Gail Clark, who, who still works here. And I met those three, and um, it was just a really good conversation, to be honest. We just we were discussing what we felt about development, and my passion is genuinely pretty evident for everyone to pick up straight away that... I'm not really, I don't care if they're six or 26, I just love helping people to try and improve and develop as players um, or snowboarders, if you like. And on the back of the conversation, 
it became apparent there was also a need for, they had a, another vacancy for the academy manager's role. And I think my previous experiences lent themselves quite well to that role and hopefully I'm proving that since arriving. I think it's going okay, but just because of a necessity and my skill set, having been an academy manager for some time at Leighton Orient, um, and then, you know, adding to that the first team experiences that were more recent, probably to, to help support the 23s and make that connection and that step through to the first team, I think all of it lent itself to say that I might be okay to fulfil this role. So I guess they went out on a bit of a limb because they, you know, I didn't know any one of those people in that interview personally before we came in. They took a bit of a chance, which I'm, you know, I'll always be grateful for, as I said. And right now I'm really enjoying it. And it's, you know, there's some there's challenges like every job and that's also interesting and fascinating to take on. So Rich, in that role as academy manager, what does it entail? Um, a bit of everything, really. It's, I mean, I make it a bit of everything. I know that different clubs have different models and it's becoming slightly more prevalent, I would say, for the academy manager to be possibly a slightly more academic background and less of a, a football or a coaching background. And it's clearly got its benefits. And having been on a course I'm on at the moment where all the uh, um, academy managers are connected through this course that we're doing, EM, you get a lot of interaction. It's been fantastic just for the social of meeting academy managers from all over the country, which... It, traditionally, I don't think would have happened very often, certainly at your level maybe, or geographically local to you, yes. But to get to know sort of most academy managers from every category of the game from all over the country has been such a powerful thing, I think, for our peer learning, uh, peer support as much as anything else. And that, that shows how I've learned that a number of clubs have got very, very different models and very different ways of doing things. Traditionally, your academy manager was... Um, which coach the 18s or the youth team as it were and predominantly focus on the coaching side and being on the grass and, and really sort of lean on some administrator or some support staff behind them and for the better I think the game has moved away from that model um, and we are now more encompassing people that are degree educated that know how to run a business and know what performance management looks like and, and can really cultivate the environment albeit they might need to lean on people that have got a more footballing background but that, that blend looks like it's a really good model um, and I'm desperately trying to I'm trying to develop the skills to be able to discuss business aspects of the academy um, as well as discuss coaching and the football side of it and trying to blend the two being involved in every department you're involved with everybody and those constant interactions um, I've just walked out of an academy management team meeting now and they're you know they're, they're weekly and it's I'm enjoying that side of it because it's given me a, it's always developing your understanding of where you might be able to improve or tweak or get that the marginal gains to make your environment better and improve it. As well as, you know, in this particular role, adding to being responsible for the loans of some of our young players, being responsible for contracts um, and player and agent negotiations and things like that. Um, I think that's been a fascinating part of the role. And it, it's all encompassing and that's pretty much what fascinates me. It sounds like there's a lot of different aspects to the job now, which you may have not experienced previously. But in terms of, of you personally, are you, are you more of a hands-on type of person or do you tend to delegate to people that may have done it before or may be better suited to it? Um, that's a real challenge for me and probably a weakness where I want to be hands-on with everything. Um, but it is, to be honest, it's part of this course that the Premier League invested in, in the academy managers and the heads of coaching. Um, and I want to say invested in, they've invested heavily in terms of the, the calibre of um, 
staff that run it and organize it and the guest speakers where a lot of it is about training you how to lead more appropriately so not feeling you need to be hands-on being prepared to delegate appropriately and and that's been absolutely invaluable because the role is is a big role you know i think you've got 30 full-time uh, certainly 25 full-time staff maybe five or six part-timers that are here most of the time and then a team of part-time coaches behind that so it's, it's quite a big workforce and to try and be hands-on in every facet is just physically impossible and if you, if you are trying to do that you, you're generally probably going to spread yourself too thin and not really be particularly productive in any one of them uh, so learning to delegate absolutely is really come to the fore in this particular role um but I've never been one to be too insecure. I'd rather surround myself with people that know their topic really, really well and can educate me. The same with the coaches. I'm not precious about that at all. I'd rather have the best coaches out on the grass that are all better than me, no question whatsoever. I'd rather be the, the worst member of staff in the building. If I can manage all those people and get the best out of them, the environment's still going to be fantastic, whether I'm the most experienced or the best or whatever way you want to term it or not. Um, so but I've never, never had an insecurity about that. I'd rather get the best people we can find and make the environment really, really strong because invariably you know that if you trust in the process, that's probably going to allow the boys and the kids to come through the system. There's a lots of responsibility uh, which comes with the role or the title, Rich. Uh, but as a lead person overseeing the academy, you've got to manage up, you've got to manage sideways, you've got to manage downwards, but who, who assesses you in that position? Um, well, I work very closely with Barry Quinn. So the two of us, Barry is title is uh, head of academy and he's also head of coaching. Um, and I'm academy manager. And we, uh, the structure, like I say, I'm not one to concern myself too much with a hierarchical chart, but it, it, it says on it that me and him side by side and we work together. And we've spent the last sort of year and a bit really developing our relationship. We're, we're fortunate that Barry's on EHOC at the same time as I'm on EM. So we're getting a lot of the same information. We're learning about each other and, and what, what I know is going to upset Barry, what I know is going to excite Barry and him probably similarly about me. We share the same psych support mentor. So that's been really powerful because she's been able to help and you know, help us a bit, a bit of a conduit for the pair of us really. It's been really enjoyable to develop that relationship because you know, he's got such a wealth of experience and knowledge and he's been around the game so long. We probably couldn't fail to, uh, I couldn't fail to learn something. So that, that's been really beneficial. Um, and then, so we sort of check each other, I suppose, more than anything else. And um, we've just recruited as a club, the club just recruited a new sporting director, Cristiano, who we'll now answer into and will be part of our technical board. So that will be very, very helpful. Prior to that, it was Scott Duck for the chief exec. And uh, just having all of those interactions has been really interesting to see just different responses, different um, interactions that you're learning from all the time. If you're going looking for to, to learn something, you're probably going to find one thing at least. And if you take that mindset towards stuff, you normally come away with a few more. And that, that's been really interesting just to see the volume of stuff they've got to get through and, and how they have to prioritize themselves and how they have to prioritize their time and things like that. And that, that's been a really interesting learning curve, but again, quite enjoyable actually to, to see the inner workings of a club, you know, obviously we're a Premier League at the time and right, we're championship now, but it, the club hasn't changed over the, the last three months. It's still the size of stature that it's been for some time. Um, and to see the volume of staff, um, you know, the volume of players, the traffic through the building, it, it's been really eye-opening, a very interesting experience. And, you know, it fills you with, with hope that you can actually potentially work in that environment again one day and understand different roles and um, a variety of things in there. So, yeah... 
you're on the EAM course, you mentioned about Barry, Barry Quinn being on the EOC course. Personal development is obviously near and dear and just listening to you, you know, that want and desire to want to improve both yourself and others is, is paramount. It's important. But in being able to help others first, we've got to actually understand who we are. What, what do you stand for? And if you had to describe yourself as a coach, what would you say about yourself? Uh, evolving, firstly, uh, just like you've just alluded to there, that self-improvement. You got. I think I can vividly remember where it became apparent in my mind, whether I, whether I was like it before or not, certainly at school, academically, my, my mum would definitely tell you I wasn't, but whether I was looking for ways in which to learn, have a hunger and appetite to develop, before that, I'm not sure, but I certainly remember working at Orient and um, we were, the London Coaches Association would utilise our players to deliver their sessions to their members and um, I would, our staff then would come along and watch. And I remember very, very vividly, a staff member stood at the back whilst we had a guest. I don't know who the guest was on the particular night. I just very remember, I remember staff nudging the person next to me going, well, I wouldn't do that. And I wouldn't do this. And, and I couldn't, I wouldn't be doing it that way. They proceeded to do that for about 30 minutes. And I'm thinking, funny, you've just missed everything that's gone on for 30 minutes because you've been annoying this person and they've probably missed it as well. And it, it was a real eye opening moment. And I, but I don't know if I would already had the mindset, but that certainly instilled an awareness of the mindset to go, don't ever make that mistake. Like wherever you go, go and look to get one thing out of it. So if I get one thing out of EM, which is a two year postgrad degree, I'll be content. But by looking for one thing, as I've already alluded to, I'll find loads and loads of stuff and it'll be, it'll be never ending. Um, so as a coach, evolving would be the first sort of word that I would say very hard working and detail oriented and honest really. Um, I think it's vital that you're honest with the players. I think it's vital that you're honest with the parents. Uh, I think it's, it's as vital you're honest with the staff. Um, and that then the filters into other peers in different departments at the club and agents. I just feel it's the most straightforward way to work. If you're clear and transparent with people, there, know that you, you eliminate sort of your own pitfalls along the road or you negate most problems that might come up on the horizon because you've laid it all out from once you've seen it enough times, which I appreciate takes experience and a, a bit of knowledge when you've had, you have to have seen a few players through the entire pathway and you probably can't make certain statements until you've done that one, because they might not buy you or believe you. And two, because you haven't actually got the depth of knowledge to say, I've seen this plenty of times. This is how it's likely to go. Not necessarily, but there's every chance this might occur. We wouldn't have that term. We wouldn't have to wait and we wouldn't, suddenly develop this knowledge at 35, 40, 45, you know, and onwards. But I think certainly the, the, the words I've used there, evolving, hardworking, detail and honest. Thinking about your role as academy manager, what areas in your role are you most effective and efficient at? Oof, um, good question. Most efficient, most effective is probably out on the grass, and translating realism for the players. My passion is the coaching side. I'm, I'm really falling back in love actually with the, with the, uh, the academy management side of it. Um, and you, I don't think you'll ever lose that, that spark or that hunger to get back to first team entirely as much as I'm fully committed to the role, no question. Um, and while I'm here, I'll work tirelessly to start a conveyor belt of players, which I'm sure will happen um, over the next sort of six to 18 months. Uh, and I will do absolutely everything I can to support the, the staff and the kids 
to get to where they want to get to. That that thrill and that rush of a match day um, where it, it matters so much. That work Monday to Friday, you know, he's going to be judged in a ninety-minute window, regardless of how good it might have been. That is probably where I honestly am most effective and most efficient out on the grass um, in terms of working with the kids and, and getting information into them. And then I think I'm becoming, I'm improving slowly at the, at the delegation side, as we touched on earlier. I think decision making is probably my strongest area where I won't delay. If a decision needs to be made, I'm happy to make it. I appreciate and I'll weigh up what the pitfalls are and I'm happy to encounter those if I've got it wrong. But I don't sort of dwell on that for too long. I'll we'll quickly come to a new decision and a new one and a new one until we find a solution that works, as opposed to getting too disheartened by something not going particularly well if I've made the wrong decision. Happy to own that and fully be responsible for it. But at the same time, not dwell on that and not, not focus on any you know, naysayers that, oh, well, you got that one, well, I might have got it wrong, but watch it run up twice in a row and we'll move on and we'll, we'll carve out a different pathway or find a different option. But what are you least effective and efficient at? Uh, that's, that's an e- I think that's actually an easier question, only because of how much time has been spent discussing things of this nature on EM. It is to make you look much more closely at yourself as a start point and sort of work back from there and go, what are your strengths? It's really obvious to identify, you know, happy to have tough conversations and where are you least effective? And I think that is probably in terms of, and I'm working tirelessly actually to improve this because it's, it's absolutely vital to develop good relationships and create a good environment, but it's having difficult performance conversations. Whereas in a way in which you're going to get a response, an appropriate response or something that you would want back from members of staff, um, I know that be heard by any, any of the staff that work with me at Orient, they would say sort of quite aggressive on the front foot, very impatient. Um, and that's probably what I've worked on most, actually, certainly in this new role. Um, and I've got a kickstart in that from Knox, actually, because it's all very well to, it wasn't very well. I look back and think, oh, I'd rather have done that differently. Lots of things in terms of, different conversations with staff members and being unnecessarily brutal about poor performance. Being honest is fine, but he doesn't need to get personal spiteful. And actually I might well have boarded into that, which I look back now with more experience as an older, wiser person and know that had I had the skills of you know, slowly developing off of EM, that probably wouldn't have been the case. I might have, we put, got, might have got the same outcome that the member of staff might well have been leaving or not, well, not working for us too long because their productivity wasn't where it needed to be, but I could have got more productivity out of them had I approached it slightly differently or been more patient. That is, that has always, what well, has for some time been my biggest weakness, I would say. And now I'm doing a hell of a lot of work to try and educate myself about how to go about that. And the course has been fantastic for it. But that, that would, I would say performance management is probably was and certainly has been the most, the biggest weakness. You've just touched on the, the performance management and previously you talked about the staff that you have in and you would rather have the best staff and be the worst, the worst staff member in the building. Now, in your role, you have to bring staff in, whether it be part-time, full-time members. What traits and qualities do you look for in the staff members that are that are or people that are interviewing to become a, a member of staff at Watford? 
Uh, well, I, th I think that's, I think for every individual, obviously we like, we like people like ourselves, I think as, as just, you know, human nature. Um, so that obviously lends me to say things like honesty, hard working, etc. Um, what I really want to see are people that are unbelievably motivated, hungry to do well. You know, I mean, they're, they're obvious answers. You want people that are obsessed. I say this to the kids all the time <laughs> and probably too much. You know, I'm not out on the grass permanently, so it's only sporadic for them to hear it. But I say to me, you've got to become as obsessed as I am with any particular facet of the game. And I might be talking about one detailed aspect of one position's performance, but you've got to be obsessed for me. You've got a real overwhelming passion to want to help people and see them through. You've got to be strong enough to, to deal with people when they're questioning what you're saying and what you're doing. You're trying to introduce new things that they haven't experienced before, even if you have. And even if you're being brave and, and going, you know what, we, we haven't done this before. I haven't seen it before. I'm going to try and introduce this and we'll see if it works. If it doesn't, fine. Which alludes to the decision making earlier, but absolutely passionate people that you know, are desperate to be here, ready to put in ridiculous hours, even though it's something I try to be quite strong on getting people away. I try to manage that because I, I think that that's also a flaw sometimes. Go, oh, I do seven till seven. Then you maybe you should have used your time more efficiently through the day. That's not just a key performance indicator of you being very good at your job. It's actually not necessarily right so it's not that i want people to go i want to be here all day every day and never leave again you, you suffer quick burnout and their motivation might not be as high as if they, they're getting the right amount of break and time away from each other from the, from the kids from the environment so i think that's all key stuff um but you must you don't want to have to put the reins on people not the other way around you don't want to be dragging them into the office you want to have to be putting the reins on them. listen just stay away tomorrow what are you doing do, do in here? Get, get yourself away now. Um, and I'm, I'm quite sort of, I think I'm on top of that. And it's something that I really value and take seriously that I was, you know, if I'm listening to someone who is leading me in theory, I want them to be conscious that I've got a family or I've got other commitments or should be having those things to lead a normal and healthy lifestyle that will make me more productive in the long term, actually, when I'm in the environment. And I'm open-minded, as, uh, as Keith mentioned earlier. If you're not open-minded, we're going to struggle straight out of the gate. You've got to be ready to try some stuff and be flexible. So I'm going to move on a little bit from the coaches and delve a little bit into the players at mm. Watford. What do you want the identity of Watford football club players to look like in, in all phases? So foundation, youth development and professional phase. The obvious are, I mean, we get this a lot in sort of recruitment. Um, oh, what's, what creates some player profiles? You want good players, uh, and it, it finishes right there. You want good players. On top of that, you want all the same traits players that are hungry and motivated, you know, and are flying around most of the time because they're just so enthusiastic, so excited to be in the environment. Um, you naturally want all the what, what society perceives to be, you know, good traits. You want them to be hardworking, humble honest, reliable, all, all those things that are easy to put up a poster on the wall. But none of those things are borne out unless the people at the top are living them every day. Um, and, you know, when I say at the top, I don't mean myself, I just mean anyone who is, so the age group lead coach is at the top of that age group. They have to be living and breathing those values because the kids will pick those up. And that's not to say they haven't got them already, but that's, that's what you want. You want kids that are enthusiastic. And again, hungry to learn is great. They're not, they're not all going to be that. So it's then on the the skill of the coach to try and refine and understand 
which parts we might be able to support the players with, they might not be getting somewhere else. You know, you just want players that are going to work tactically aware um, and technically quite tidy. If you get a trialist that comes in or you get a player that comes, he's just new into the system. Have you ever experienced where they're not lacking enthusiasm, they're just lacking, lacking a little bit of relief? So it doesn't display itself as enthusiasm. It comes across as, well, the lackluster, but in actual fact, they're trying to find the feet. Yeah, we've experienced that, I'd say, quite a lot, if I'm honest, because you know that if they're coming to you, depending on the age, in a lot of cases, sort of above the age of 10 or 11, because obviously we take them at nine for the first time. But if you're getting them at any older age than that, they may well have been at another club first. Obviously, if we get them at nine, we know they haven't necessarily been at a professional club first and they might have been training as underage, but no more than that. If you get them at any age older than that, then what you find is they've already been at a professional club and if they've been released or left that club for whatever reason, it will often be a negative reason or connotation to it. So you're always conscious of lads coming in from other clubs where you might have to go through that picking them up phase or you can expect some indifferent behaviour to come out. And you know, we, we're often speaking about that. And what has their pathway been to get to this point? And it's, it's almost part one of the flaws that the trial period is arguably too short, not in terms of to know whether they can play the game or not, but to know much more and know them more deeply about their character um, and their behavioural traits, as I say. The football you can see within minutes normally, you can see if someone's an athlete and can move and they've got balance and timing. And once they've received three or four balls, you, they might be nervous on the first night. But if you've watched them for any more than five minutes, if you've done your job when they walk in the door and you've put them at ease and you've helped them relax and you've made them feel welcome and comfortable, naturally you're going to probably get a better performance earlier in that trial process, whether that's 10 minutes or you know 10 days. So in the professional phase, the Youth Development Foundation, would you find with any one of those three phases, what you've just alluded to, slightly different? Yeah, absolutely. I think you also see that with players that you release as well. You know, whenever I have that conversation with kids, which is the toughest part of the job, undoubtedly, um, explaining to them that their journey is not going to continue with you in this environment. I probably, could probably reference more the players that have been released that have gone on to be successful. And people go, oh, well, that's not very good. You're making mistake after mistake. And I'm not sure they are mistakes, which could be my ego going, oh, I can't say you've got it wrong. We can, only, we can only judge them based on what we see at the time and what we've seen over a course of a period of time. And we know that players flourish at different stages and, and ages. And we, you, know, you can't take them all. And it, it's very difficult. And we've certainly seen a number of scenarios like that. We, we had internal debates among the staff and some people were vehemently opposite each other. Um, and players have gone on to not you know, fulfil f- uh, um, careers in the game as players. And we've had others where someone's vehemently saying, no, no, definitely not. And they have gone on and had careers. And that, that happens every season in every club all over the world. Um, and that will never change. It will never go away. Because if we could bottle that knowledge to go, he's going to be a player, we wouldn't need all of this stuff. We wouldn't need the psych stuff to cajole people to do what we want. We wouldn't need, you know, we wouldn't need any coaching. We wouldn't need any of it. Because you know who they are. That will never go away. But I think certainly with players that have had some really interesting surprises, even recently, we, at Leighton Orient, we released a boy called Jacob Baddow, who um, it was a, a very split decision in our building at the time. A number of staff were saying we should retain him and a number of staff were saying, you know, other staff were saying we shouldn't. And um, 
I saw him last weekend play against Watford's first team for a weekend before for Scunthorpe. He left us, he went to Bury, played a few games in the first team, got bought by Villa. Um, and if you could look at him physically then, and, and this you know, is another frustration of mine that people can't see beyond the physical at the right times um, because it's the one thing that 23s is built for or late developers. 23s isn't for anything else. It's for rehab and late developers. If they're ready, they're going to be in earlier than that. Um, but we've learned off the continent that if you leave them in longer and you, you get those returns later on. So that's why 23s was formed. But we still get people going, oh, no, physically you can't do. Can't do X, Y, and Z. Well, that's the last bit. That's the last piece of the jigsaw. If we've educated them to be tactically astute and technically very, very good, then yes, there's an element of mother nature and there's an element of the program that we put in for them. And they may or may not get there physically, but it shouldn't be the first factor, in my opinion, that we, you know, whether we keep players or not. Back to Jacob, he came and played against us, um, our first team, a couple of weeks ago for Scunthorpe, where he's now playing. And just to look at him physically, he is a world away from the boy that left us. Although he was a bit long and a bit rangy and struggling to cope with his limbs at times, he was still absolutely committed, always had a nice left foot, great, great kids, strong family support and network. And it was a debate because we had a number of centre-halves, actually, and he was a centre-half. And we go, oh, is it, is it one too many? Are we hindering them all by taking an extra person? Um, so we considered lots of factors. It wasn't just his physicality or one thing. And we felt some others were in front of him at the time. And, and you know, other, others have also gone on to, to do well. But he came back, and I'm looking again, wow, like recently, as two weeks ago, I'm still getting great lessons going, you know, you've got to remember this as a case study. I didn't realise I was going to reference it two weeks later on this call, but... It's it's so prevalent in my mind when I'm having those conversations in our building now. We and, and physicality is the first thing staff want to put on the list. Sometimes, not always, but whenever that is the first thing, I'm always very mindful of that. That being a bit of a red flag that we probably shouldn't be judging them on that before all of the other stuff because we have to judge them. That's the industry. It's a judgmental industry. Um, we can't get away from that. But for me, that's generally got to be the last thing on the list. Sure. Quite a comprehensive answer and lots of detail in there. But what what, do you, what makes you most curious around that difference when you're selecting or retaining a player? Um, that's a great question. I'm not sure. I think part of me thinks you've got to be fascinated by all of it. I don't think you can leave out any aspect. I think you've got to you've really got to look at every aspect um, in great detail. And I guess. You know, some people might disagree with it and go, oh, no, if you look too closely, you'll just find all the things they can't do, which is obviously a, a common trait in what is our measure of success? What, what are our KPIs here? If we are creating players for the game at all levels, are we not doing our job? Are we being successful? Are we giving these kids the opportunity that they came to us for? Yes. If we are only judging ourselves based on can we get one in our own first team and they've all got to end up in our own first team, we are only going to fail. So let's not set ourselves up to fail and go, they must all get in our first team. That is unbelievably difficult. The Premier League is full of players from all over the globe. So naturally, they're not all going to be living in Watford at nine and suddenly all come through the system and walk into Watford's first team at 20. It doesn't happen that way. So we can't criticise ourselves or or judge the system uh, and our particular academy based on first team productivity. It has to be our core desire, 100%. I was having this conversation last week that it should be everybody's desire to make them internationals. Straight out the gate, first day you meet them, I want to make them an international. Now, we obviously are aware we're not going to get them all to that, cross that line, but that should be the goal. And whatever, you know, we, we should be aiming there, and whatever branch we hit on the way down, 
should also be good enough. And that might not be as a player. It might be they fell in love with the academy system. They love the game. They're going to come back as coaches. I think that's a great, I think that's always a really good indictment of the, of the system when you can take scholars that didn't quite crack it or a pro for a year or went straight to the league that want to come back and be coaches in the system. It says a lot about your environment. That, and we had a lot of that at Lane Orient, which I would love to make sure happens here. And we've just had one lad who's already come back recently. And I think that's a really powerful message to, to parents, to families, um, and carers, and the kids that the environment is strong. When we've got lads that we're saying, we don't think you're going to quite get there, come back to work in our system. It says a lot about the staff, the environment. I think that's a real positive, and I, I like that a lot. But yeah, I don't think you can look at any one of them in isolation, to be honest. I think you need to focus on, on, on a lot of it. So having a balance for you both you having that and and sharing that with your staff you mentioned the word uh, bias which is really formulated around your beliefs you know mm. if you were a centre-back as a player then what do we tend to judge players off centre-back roles centre-back decisions centre-back positions where they are on the pitch both in and out possession of the ball and vice versa if you you're a forward so there's a little bias around it but the when you're working with your staff and equally with yourself, in actual fact, Rich, I know you, little do I know you, but I think I know you enough that you, you like being on the grass and without the ball, it's, it's, not, a, it's not the same game for you. But do, do you actually work with the staff and have a checklist, you know, a set of rules, both for them and equally for the players? So left back gets it, you want him to do X, Y and Z. Uh, had anything like that both in the working in all phases but I'm solely projected possibly more around the youth and maybe definitely in around the professional phase of the game yeah not not so much at um, the foundation phase I, I agree it's sort of a, a lot more freedom um, want the kids to enjoy it and express themselves absolutely and wouldn't pigeonhole anyone um, including the keepers you know a challenge here in the building suggesting that we should play the keepers out on pitch for one period every game because of, I don't think it's right to pigeonhole them. I think the stats suggest that goalkeepers don't go in goal to about 12 and a half, specialise at about just over 14 years old. So why would we pigeonhole anybody at this age? We won't do it for an outfielder, why would we do it for a goalkeeper? Um, and the stats back up, actually, that that's probably not the right thing to do. So but that's, that's received a bit of challenge, which has been interesting to have that debate and try and help people understand why I believe that's necessary. So there's that sort of total freedom at that age to, to play everywhere and, and just... You know, if you can show some tactical understanding at that age, because I don't think that's, you know, seen as a swear word, talking about tactics with under nines and tens, and I don't think it should be. Um, if, we're, if I'm playing back with a, a partner, then we probably need to know we need to work in tandem a little bit. That's tactical. That's, that's not me overcoaching or throwing the entire theory book at them. That's just saying, try and have a bit of a relationship. How close do you need to be? How far apart can you afford to be? You know, when can one of you drift off and join in the play? When have you got to work together? I think you're, you should be touching on that stuff without letting the kids know that's what you're doing. Certainly in the youth development phase, you start to sort of, we've actually, one of the you know, very, very few positives, the lockdown scenario we've just been through here for months, one of the positives that we tried to make out of it was that we were able to, like the rest of the world, have a million Zoom calls a day and drive ourselves insane, making up work and creating whatever we could. So we looked very closely at, and, and these are right across the, every club has got these, I understand that. And we just had the, it gave me a chance, I mean, I've only been in at that time about 12, about a year um, when that started, uh, the chance to really, uh, had given me a year to assess and really look at what was going on and then to review lots of our 
admin, basically, the paperwork and the stuff that supports the coaches, which in turn supports the players. And the fact that we had profiled players, absolutely, but it had been you know, slightly generic and probably almost too idealistic. Actually, you know, I had a conversation when I first arrived about somebody out on the grass and I was like, who would sign that lad? And I would. Really energetic, making stuff happen, technically very good, tactically astute, but an absolute tiny dot. And I'm going, I would, because he's our equivalent of someone who's only going to develop to a size of someone like Will Hughes, who's in our first team every week because he's such a top player. So if, if the first team hasn't got a type, because we've got a Troy Deeney type that is very physical, very domineering, and got loads of great attributes, we've also got a Will Hughes is, who is not those things, then why would our academy not reflect that? We can't just go, we want number nines that are big and do this. We want all the number tens have to look like this. They don't. If you look at world football, they don't all look the same. You look at Messi, absolutely, obviously, he's a dribbler. You look at David Silva, he's a dribbler, but he's a passer. Um, why would we say we can only have one type of number 10 or one type of centre-back? I don't see that being realistic and relevant. So we went through in the lockdown and just sort of looked at what were the basics that players needed to try and have a career. and we spoke about the easiest example is use the fullback and you might say they've got five stop passes. So, okay, we need the kids need to know what these five stop passes are in order to give themselves a chance at career. If they can make passes six, seven and eight, or now they might be Premier League players. If they can make passes nine, 10, 11, now they might be Champions League players. If they can make passes 12 and 13, they might be internationals. So you look at, you know, the obvious two at the moment that are, very fashionable, you know, Alexander-Arnold and Robertson at, at um, Liverpool. They're going to make the five-stop passes, but then they're going to get assists from the middle third of the pitch and from the bottom third of the pitch because they can wrap it in behind the centre-back and the centre-forward collects it in on goal. They can hit big dives. They can drop it in over second centre-half. And these are passes you don't need to have a career. You don't need to make them to have a career. You've got to make the four or five-stop passes around you. If you can make passes six to 12, you're taking yourself to different levels of the game. So it gave us a chance to really look at that and, and profile what players needed, not necessarily what we wanted them to be, but what were the needs of the game when they'd get to first-team age, which is obviously, again, another conundrum to try and predict what the game will look like, but um, we can have an idea. So it's more about not saying, oh, right, you go, you know, your centre-forward's got to be six foot five. Well, no, if he's, if he's five foot five, he's got to have a different set of qualities and he's got to be able to do X, Y, and Z on his list of one to 12 things. So it's trying to make sure that I opened up everybody's eyes and, and we had good discussion in, internally about not just going physical first because that's a frustration of mine, as you're probably, probably aware by now, because we can't look at the modern game and look at the players that aren't physically dominant, albeit they might run a yo off the clock. Physical, physicality, I know, looks like lots of different things. But we get wrapped up in it's big and it's bulky. Now, that's not physicality necessarily. It's been out of repeat high-intensity sprints over and over and over. You might be eight stone wet, but if you can repeat them and butcher that fallback into submission, you might well be a successful player. You don't. It's not just size and bulk, um, and that is something that I'm sort of passionate about. That we we don't miss younger or smaller players because we've you know back to your word we're, we're biased. Going oh well, this is what it looks like in the adult game. Well, what it looks like are oh, Javi's and Iniesta's all over the place now, actually far more so than there ever were. And we need to be mindful that, that that physicality could well be capable if they're exceptional at other things. Um, so we, we sort of profiled players in that way 
what are the requirements of the role and how might different size and shape players perform them? There's some good detail there. So you got, if you get five passes or five different variants of transferring the ball from A to B, is that on a board for your coaches? It's a little checklist for them, staff and for players. Yeah, we haven't shared it with the, with the players yet. The staff, we all, everybody puts things. So we, uh, you know, part of the whole try and create enough work for people um, whilst they were away from here to, to make sure that we were accountable to people above us and they knew we were being diligent. We, we came up with a couple of uh, projects. So we spoke about um, uh, what formation do you think should be played at your age group? But as a case study, I didn't want just that answer. It was you have to make a case as to why you think that's what should happen at your age group and how it fits into nine to 23 and where and why it fits in the pathway where you say it should. So that it made people go away and really study one formations and what learning you might get out of them, but also what does the program look like from nine to 23? They couldn't just focus on the under 12s if that's what they were the age group coach on. Because that's quite a big piece of work. I think it's going to take you some time to really develop that and years and years actually, if you want to become passionate and really have that depth of detail. So that was one of them. The other project about the player profiling was we, we've created lots of electronic documents that we can all share now and see as staff. But now it's about how do we filter it to the players? Do we need to show them that? Do we need to get them video clips attached to that? So that was, that was the next project. Getting video clips attached because they're so powerful, especially in the modern era. So much stuff is readily available. Kids on their machines these days. We hear everybody say the same things, but it's so true. So it's about now making sure, and we've only been back in a month. So we're at the early stages of, okay, how do we disseminate all of this information? Because we've done loads of work, collated it all, and got all this stuff together. What is the best way to filter it? And I, I reference, you know, the old trickle or textbook in French when I was a kid at school. We get lots of people that want to hit you between the eyes with the entire textbook. That that's, doesn't work. You know, if you, you say it in French for an hour, you're probably covering half, maybe three quarters of a chapter. And we've got too many that want to, you know, it's someone between the eyes with the entire textbook going, you know, get all that today. And I'm like, no, it doesn't work like that. You know, I mean, you know, it's, a, it's like baking a cake. It's a recipe. You don't throw it all in at once and expect to come out with a cake. You drop the right things in at the right times. And it, so now it's about how do we disseminate that to the players and the parents so they can support and the parents and carers so they can support the players. And it's, and it's important that we get the, the knowledge deep in the staff first that in, 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 invariably allows it to transfer to the kids. So what we do next, I'm not sure. I'll be coming to you for some answers on that after this call. So Rich, I'm going to go back to something that you were talking about a little, just briefly earlier, where you, you mentioned about players getting released and then going on having success elsewhere. There will be a point in the year, every year, where you have to have those ugly conversations with the staff, with the players, the parents, and potentially depending on their age with the agents about releasing players. How do you handle those, the conversations with all the stakeholders involved? Invariably, like you mentioned, players that move, some players will move on and will have great success, but in those conversations, depending on how it's geared up, it could actually push them further away from the game. Is there anything that you do in particular to, to keep the fire burning, even though it won't be at Watford? Yeah, I think that's something that um, was already happening in a very positive manner here, which is a, a sign of how the game probably has improved. E-triple-P, certainly, and the accountability for after a player leaves your club. 
I think that's really, really strong now, that pastoral care. I think you've asked a couple of questions there. So on how it's dealt with here, you know, we have uh, currently Carl and Edgar, who's our safeguard and welfare officer. Um, and unfortunately, he's leaving us soon to move on to some university work. But we've got somebody else, you know, we'll be appointing somebody else in that domain. And they play a vital role in that exit strategy. And it really is a strategy. It's not just, okay, they're done. Um, and I, I think this is probably the part that I'd imagine and let, until it happens to them, parents don't really see this bit or really appreciate the turmoil and the anxiety that is caused for the staff around the release, release and retain situation. Um, because it is very difficult. You know, unless you're inhuman, you know that you are about to potentially break the heart of a young kid. And that's not really what you do this for. You're not in it for that. It's not personal. It's not out of spite because you don't like them. All the preconceived ideas that might go with it, it's, it's none of those things. And it, like I said earlier, it is the hardest part of the job without question. So I think the way to approach it is absolutely with empathy and with honesty and to just completely reinforce that it's not the end of the road. It's merely an obstacle on the journey and reinforce little bits that you pick up. So, you know, I'm absolutely no psychologist, but I've sat in enough lectures and been on enough courses that you see that pathway to success and people's perception is a straight line from under nines to the first team. And we actually know that certain setbacks are required to develop resilience generally. Um, and what they look like it can be a whole host of things, but being released might be one of those and actually might be the catalyst for someone to develop a newfound motivation to kick on and, and have success later on. We also try and support, as every club does now, by getting the, you know, the kids an opportunity somewhere else, making sure they stay in with us. If they're, you know, if they're, if they're leaving and they're injured, for example, we don't let them go in an injured state. We want to make sure they're fit and well and, and ready to give their best when they go somewhere else next. And I think that's probably one of the most satisfying things about the job in its way is how you maintain contact with players that you've released or parents of players you've released. I think that says a lot about, you know, individuals uh, that might have been working with them. It's a lot about your environment that you, they will lean on you for advice later on down the line because they know it's going to be honest and you're going to tell them exactly how you feel, whether they agree with it or not, or whether it's right or wrong, doesn't matter. It says that they trust your opinion and they know they're going to get what they want to hear in terms of they're going to get the truth. You're not going to dress it up. You're not going to say, don't worry about it. You're going to get signed up by, you know, so-and-so next week. It won't be. No, it, it might not be that. Um, it, it's about reinforcing. And I think there's so much, this is such a wider question, actually. Now I'm getting going on it. But it, this is where we have to reinforce. And it, it, it all comes back to environment. But when we talk about the 12 or 13-year-old, that is known to his peers, his teachers, his family, direct and wider family. Oh, you're a Watford player. Well, no, you're not. You're a 12 or 13-year-old kid who happens to play your football at the moment for Watford. And I think that dynamic needs to change. That's where we get a lot of psychological drop-off in players, as you guys will both know, that their whole identity is I'm a Watford player. We then take that away by releasing them, and suddenly they are left unsure, very little clarity about what they actually are, because all of their value and their worth is placed in the so-called perception that they're a Watford player, not they're a you know a big brother or a cousin to someone or they're not a musician at school none of that all that powers into insignificance and i understand because everyone's so passionate it's the national sport and you know everyone would like to be a, you know lots of little boys would like to be a footballer and obviously girls but i'm only working in the, in the male section it's so evident to me that we should be 
letting them not not specialising so early. And I've heard other people in my role speak like this, but I, I don't agree with early specialisation. Um, so we push them to say, listen, go and you know absolutely go and play for your county, play and go and play for your school team. You, you might be the best. That might be your best fun, your most fun as a kid because you're the best player in your school environment or your, your county or your district. Go and you know, represent the tennis team or any other sport you like, go and be in a rugby team. You're going to get so many experiences that cross over between sports. They're not going to do you any harm going to playing in games. And us missing you for a couple of weeks or you're going to be in the school play or you're going to be in the choir, go and get those experiences because I know, you know there was obviously a big debate 10, 12 years ago about Ericsson's 10,000 hours theory. A good friend of mine, Jamie Goldsmith, who's an SNC leader at Palace, always talks about 10,000 experiences. And I've absolutely stolen that from him and use it everywhere. Because I think those 10,000 experiences are of as much value as the 10,000 hours. Um, whether you are for or against that argument, I think the 10,000 experiences, is just a great way of putting it, let them be kids because they're kids. And we know that such a minimal number of them are going to get to first team level or to even be professionals that we shouldn't put as much pressure on them and we shouldn't let them develop this persona and this perception in, their, in any facet of their life, really, if we can support that to go, I am a Watford player. You're not really. You're, you're you know, a young lad who happens to play Sunday morning football at Watford, who happens to train once or twice more a week than your local club that we got you from or that you might, you, all your mates are playing for. And if we can try to take some of the seriousness away, we hopefully don't get that psychological drop-off after release because release will happen. It's an elitist field. It's like any field in the world. We all want to go to university. If we want to, we can't all do that. We can't all do elements because some of us aren't quite sharp enough. Me, pretty much, what I'm talking about. Um, we can't all go to Oxford and Cambridge. There's only so many places, and you've got to do so well to get in there. It's a, probably a better example, but that's not reality. We can't just oh well, I want to be a footballer. That's not how it works. I want to be Olympian. Well, unfortunately, only about eight men compete in the final of the men's under meets final. You know, only so many of any sport compete in that top level. That's the nature of it, but there's almost like not an acceptance that that's the situation. And it, it's, uh, it needs a lot more education around the entire field, if I'm honest. That, that's such a big field in itself. Speaking to Keith as a lead on the FA site course for so long, I know I'm preaching to converted, but there's so much work to be done there. I think that parent and carer education is where we, uh, the academies fall down and the industry falls down a bit. We need to share more with as much as we can. I'm, you know, I'm huge on it being very open and us sharing everything that parents understand all of these things because it's going to help them help their kids later on if there is some bad news on the way or there are some pitfalls on, in the road to develop some resilience and help them come back and have success or, or enjoy other facets of their life even if football isn't their, their end goal, you know. Going forward... What areas do you believe the future coach will need to develop? Um, I think a greater understanding of all aspects of child psychology, um, that that empathy with uh, parents and carers, to understand, really to understand a lot about that last answer I just gave in terms of appreciating the whole environment, letting them be the second sibling. You know, if if you're the, if you're the, the brother who's at Watford and but your, your sister's brilliant at other stuff or plays for her female football team. When is she the dominant one for the weekend? When are we all going to get around that sibling and go, God, look at, you know, 
make them feel the same level of value that the little lad at Watford feels every day of the week because everyone goes, oh, he's the boy from Watford in our school. Um, it's about that, that impacts that family dynamic straight away. If, if the kids are lucky enough to still be in, in sort of two parent families, they're, they're disconnected every Sunday morning because a parent takes one with one place, a sibling in another place. We have to appreciate that impact we're having on them and their week. Um, that limited amount of time they might get together outside of work and we're going, we need all of it. And that's not right. And we have to be, we have to be mindful of those things as coaches. And I think that's something that we can improve as coaches going forwards. Uh, you know, an open-mindedness, all, all the obvious stuff. But in terms of, and I think it's evolving. You know, it's, it's, a, it's an ever-changing sort of dynamic in terms of what do we need as, as coaches going forwards. For a number of years, it's been blasphemy to say we should work unopposed or block practice. Oh, definitely do not talk tactics to below this age. But there shouldn't be a cut-off point. There shouldn't be a cut-off point in any of that. It shouldn't be a, it's only this way. That's the skill of the coach. And that's where we have to evolve the staff, that we understand what any individual needs in any given moment. That's, the, that's, that's a class coach for me. Um, if I need to take little so-and-so out and do some one-to-one -one stuff unopposed because he's not quite getting it and he can't influence the game with it, why not have a thousand reps like Tiger Woods might with his part before breakfast? Because that's going to help. And then drop him back in to some semi-opposed, then fully opposed, then overloaded. And suddenly, it's, it's again, it's, it's like the recipe. It's making a cake. What do they need and when? They don't need it all at once, but it's about having that understanding, that balance. And I think that empathy around our impact on them children and their, their wider community, their families, and then that understanding about there is nothing that should be taboo. You know, we get kids that come in. It's amazing how it's not, I feel it's not more common or widespread. That, oh, it's got to be 1v1 domination at nine, 8, 9 and 10. Absolutely, that'd be great if I can do all that. But what about a kid who comes in and because of his physical stature, he's learned to play off one and two touch actually. Never gets caught in possession and, and he's quite accurate with his passing because you still get some of those that walk in the door at 8. Now, I'm not saying we don't give them all the 1v1 domination skills but certainly don't knock out of them the fact they can play round corners and off one and two touch already. What a great start point. They've got that tactical awareness to go, I need you a little bit closer and now I'll release the ball. They, they, whatever their environment, however their environment has shaped them, that's what they bring to us at eight and nine years old. So something they've been doing has led them to get to that point already. Why on earth would we put the brakes on that? We just overemphasize and overemphasize because you've got you know, the next Michael Carrick. You, you don't stop that. And I feel that that's something that goes on a lot. It's, oh, you can only do this. It's, it's all too prescribed at times in certain phases. And I'm not a fan of that. <laughs> we need to be more open-minded, more flexible, recognize what the kids have got, what they need, where we can support and help them and provide that. Not say, well, we've got this prescribed stuff you should have at nine. But that's just my opinion. Though. Well, Rich, I think my dad and I, um, I'm sure you can tell from our reactions that we do agree with it. Look, the interview itself has been top draw. There's been, it's obviously, it's called the Goldust Podcast. And from start to finish, you've just been sprinkling Goldust all over the interview with gems and knowledge and, and just honest thoughts. So from us, we just want to thank you for coming on. I think it's been exceptional. Really enjoyed listening to you and, and, and what you're doing and what's going on at Watford and will continue to go on. So from us, we want to thank you. I know the season's starting back up now or has been back up for the last month or so, but wish you the best of luck this season and 
sure we'll uh, we'll speak soon thank you very much i appreciate having me on i appreciate your kind words i wasn't expecting that and i've really enjoyed it so you definitely keep in touch and no doubt touch base again soon thanks guys Thanks for tuning in to the Golders podcast today. If you enjoyed this episode and you haven't already subscribed, please do so. Your continued support is highly appreciated and it means so much to us knowing that the content that's being produced is providing value in people's lives. If you would like to know more or get more information from us, you can follow us on Twitter at Gold Dust Podcast and also you can visit our website at thegolddustcoach.com. Thank you, everybody.